Let me set the scene for us with the last text that was read from Genesis. By the way, if you would open your Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, you can follow along as we follow through some wonderful teaching here. Uh, Turn to page 11. That's at the beginning. (laughs) About that far in. And then keep it open and we'll go through some of the scriptures together. There's also a place on the inside, I believe the inside, no, the back cover in this bulletin. The back cover of the bulletin, if you'd like to take any notes, the outline of the message is there, so you can plug it in if you choose to do that. If you don't, and you have a wonderful memory, it doesn't matter. But if it's helpful for some, it's there for your help. Let me begin by talking about Tara. Tara is a man we find um, in the 11th chapter of Genesis. He's living in the city of Ur, in the homeland of the Chaldeans. He is married. He has three sons. They are named Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The section beginning at the end of Genesis 11 is about Terah's eldest son, Abram. And for the next several chapters in the book of Genesis, we're going to hear a lot about Abram. At some point, we don't know when for sure, Even though we do know that Abram, his oldest son, has grown up and is married, has a beautiful young woman as his wife named Sarai, they have no children. We also know that his younger sons, Nahor and Haran, have also grown up in Ur. They are also both married, and they all have children. But at some point, the entire family of Terah chooses to leave Ur in order to travel to Canaan. We don't know the reason for the relocation. There's lots of guesses, but this is an empty area in the scripture. And whenever there's an empty area, there's all kinds of creative people that want to fill it up with what they think happened. We're not going to try that today. We just know that Terah and his family left Ur and began to travel towards Canaan. They went a northerly route, leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. But listen to what the Bible reveals in Genesis 11, verse 31, page 11 in your pew Bible. We read, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Settled. Have you ever settled? You may have a dream, a wonderment, a desire, a goal, and you make some distance on it, and then you settle. Well, I'll settle for this. I'll let this be enough. And that's what appears to have happened to to Terah and his family. And then as we read, or it was read for us by Meredith, in uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 5, God is calling out Abram for something to take them the rest of the way. At the age of 75, Abram is called by God, not out of Ur. He's already left there with his parental family, but out of Haran to leave behind many things and to go where God leads him. It's a wonderful text, but because it's got a large swath in it, sometimes we miss the fine little points that are stated in the text. Let's consider them for a moment. 
What is Abraham to do, Abram at this point? What is Abram to do in this call of God in his life? It says, Abram in verse 1, Abram is to leave his country. He's to leave his people. He's to leave his father's house. And he is to go where God shows him. Doesn't tell him where. Just says, follow me, basically. Go where I lead you. In contrast, there are things that God promises to do. And these we need to reconsider in a fresh way as well. There are six I will statements from God. Things that God promises to do. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Six of them. Consider them. Verse 1, I will show you where to go. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. I'll take care of those who are distractions, those who are enemies, those who are detractors in your life and in my call in your life. God makes a lot of promises like this. And these are made to Abram in his call out of Haran and into Canaan, the land of promise, which he doesn't know is coming. He just knows that God is leading. So God makes this call. He promises these things. He tells Abram what to do. And then there's trouble. Quickly, Abram forgets what God has said. Anybody here have a questionable memory? Some of you can't hear what I'm saying, so you don't know if you have a memory or not. (laughs) But there's a memory issue going on with Abram. Abram did not do what God asked him to do. He doesn't pack lightly. He doesn't refrain from taking part of his father's household. Verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him, so far so good, And then there's this phrase, and Lot went with him. He wasn't supposed to come. Lot was part of his father's household. Now, Abram had a soft heart for Lot because his younger brother Haran had been his father and he had died. So he probably took over the role of a parental figure in Lot's life. But he was told to leave that part of the family where they were. But he takes him with. That's just the beginning of his trouble. He arrives in the land God shows him in Canaan. A famine arises. Canaan is very poor land. If you've ever been, very many of you been to Israel? A few of us. You go to Israel. You know what Israel grows best in its ground? Rock. Loaded with rock. Now that's changed in our lifetime because they were the number one utilizers and inventors of the drip system. And as you see the drip system working in the land of Israel, that sandy, rocky soil has become incredibly fertile. In fact, if you go to the north end of Israel, where you have the eyes on the north, the eyes on Syria, you can tell exactly where the border of the country of Israel is with Syria because it's green up to the border, and after that, it's just rock and sand. So that's the land he's at. No wonder a famine comes. What can they grow? Not much. 
And so he relocates his family to Egypt along the Nile River Delta so that there can be crops for their animals, so they can provide for each other with ample water. You know, water is so scarce in Israel. You know, Israel is about the size of New Jersey. That place that gets all the news and all the attention is about the size of New Jersey. Isn't that interesting? And it has one river. And in that day, most of it was tainted with mineral water. That's now been changed. They have built canals along the, the uh, Jordan River, and that mineral water goes to health spas. So they're making money on that deal all the way down to the Dead Sea. And the Jordan River is not very big anymore because all the mineral water has been taken out of it. But back then, it was not good water for drinking or providing for your livestock. So he relocates the family. He gets to Egypt, and he tells a partial truth, partial lie. Sarai, his wife, is a beautiful woman. She has caught the eye of the Egyptian men. And the word came to Pharaoh about this new lady in town, and he wanted to meet her. So he said, tell them that you're my sister. Well, she really was. She was a half-sister. Back then, the families were probably a little too close, if you know what I mean. And so Sarai is taken into the Pharaoh's place, and that begins trouble for Pharaoh. When he finally finds out the truth that it's Abram's wife, he deports them. They are sent as immigrants to return to the place where they came from. He kicks them out of Egypt. And so they are heading back. And that's where trouble with Lot arises. All that trouble could have been avoided with Lot if Abram had just done what God said. Leave your father's household behind. But he didn't. Is there anyone here that has trouble with obeying God? Am I the only one? Oh, Diane too? <laughs> you know, I can tell there are, there are in the congregation some people who claim to be Scandinavian. Do you know how they raise their hands? <laughs> and then there's my favorite group, the ones that are Italian. They raise their hands like this. It's wonderful. Thank you for those of you who helped me out there. Um, but anyway, he's having trouble with this lot guy, and he could have avoided that all along. And so packing light is the order of the business of following God. You'll hear that from me a few more times this morning. I remember when I was younger, which is all of my former life, um, leading backpack trips in the uh, upper Sierra Nevada of California, the north end of Yosemite National Park, which is all wilderness country. And in leading these backpack trips, we'd go for a week to two weeks with a group of young people, and I would have them come to the church I was serving at the time, which was Beulah Covenant in Turlock, California. It was the only all-white Beulah church in America. And uh, we had the kids gather there, and then I required them to unpack their backpacks before we left. And I remember the first trip, three gals showed up. And as they unpacked their backpacks, what did I find? Three curling irons and three hair dryers. So I asked them, um, how long of an extension cord do you plan to carry? 
I mean, there's plenty of power in the Sierra Nevada. It's all around you, but it's not power you can plug into. And so we lightened their load. They were packing too much stuff. Abram had packed too much stuff too. But in the midst of that trouble, God renews the call. And in Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 6, we read this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He, the Lord, took him, Abram, outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, indeed, if you can count them. Then he, the Lord, said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then those beautiful words, Abram believed the Lord. God promises Abram, yes, you will have a son. You will have a son. Trouble comes quickly. In Genesis 16, Abram is already forgotten. It's been 10 years. Abram is now 85 years old. Anybody here in their 80s? There's a few. You are about the same age as what Abram was when this all happened, this trouble. Abram, Abram and Sarai believe that God needs some help. Have you ever thought God needs help? And then thought, that's a silly notion, isn't it? God needs help. And yet people do that because God's not working quick enough. Hmm. How many of you have ever heard people say or said yourself, God helps those who help themselves? Do you believe that? Sometimes God has given us the ability to be helpful to ourselves to be helpful to our friends and neighbors, to be helpful to those who are our enemies. But does God need our help? Not really. He just needs our obedience, our following close to him. But Sarai and Abram have a thing going. So Sarai comes to Abram and says, you know, God hasn't given you a son. So let me give you Hagar, my handmaid. So I'll give you Hagar, and this could be the first surrogate child in the world. <laughs> Probably not, but the first in the Bible. And so Hagar is given to Abram. He takes her. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son whose name is Ishmael. They're helping God do what God promised to do. Oh, Lord, save us from trying to help you. Help us to follow you. Help us to do what you've called us to do, which is to follow you. God renews the call again in Genesis 17. It's 13 years later. Abram is now 99, and God calls anew on his life in Genesis 17. This time, the arrangement, or called the covenant, with God will cost Abram and all the other men and boys in his household, they will all have to undergo surgery. In fact, 
Every male born into that extended family that comes from then on will have the same surgery. It's known as circumcision, and it's a surgical procedure. Now, if you're an infant, it's one thing. But if you're a a boy, a teenager, an adult, it's something else. And this is pre-anesthesia. I mean, the only anesthesia they had was very bad wine, and you couldn't drink enough of it to kill the pain from this kind of surgical experience. But Abram agrees, and then God says, and I'm going to change your name. You're going to be known as Abraham, the father of nations, because this child will come from your wife, Sarai. By the way, her name is going to be changed to Sarah. She will be the mother of nations. That's what Abram does. He's called Abraham. He has the surgery. In fact, in Genesis 17, 17, listen to what he did. He finally did. Abram fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Okay. Any hundred-year-old men here? Come on, guys. Any that are willing to admit it? 90-year-old women here? You're a 90-year-old woman? (laughs) Can you imagine having a baby at 90? I can't imagine it. Can you imagine it at 70? (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing to consider. 90 and 100, having a baby. Trusting God for a baby at between 90 and 100 years of age? Can you imagine the scandal at Covenant Village if something like that took place? (laughs) Holy cow. The problem is this cycle of God calling and empowering and telling great miracles that will happen and people forgetting continues throughout all the rest of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, God calls people, he chooses them, he protects them, he guides them, he blesses them, and all he actually asks us to do is to be a blessing. And we think we've got to help him out with all kinds of stuff. The joy of this vitality pathway is that we can help each other follow what God has said and help each other not to try and help him and to help each other bless those who are around us. That's the whole gospel. It has lots of legs, go lots of places. But this cycle of forgetfulness happens over and over and over and over. Finally, Jesus, God's son, comes along and makes a call. Listen to Matthew. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were coming, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He continues, Going from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Very simple things here. Jesus is clear. Follow me. Just follow me. Follow me. And the response for both of them. First, Peter and Andrew, at once they left their nets and followed him. 
James and John, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They packed light. They went with Jesus, allowing him to take care of them and guiding them and showing them and blessing them. They simply followed. The next nine Sundays, we will consider the marks of the vitality pathway. It's the way of following Jesus. We do not enter that pathway because we choose to do so. We enter that pathway because God has chosen to call us to it. He will lead us. He will guide us. We will pool our best energy and thinking and passion to discover what that pathway is going to look like specifically for this church. But it will be following Jesus. And these marks that we will look at are the things that create vitality in the life of the church. Are you an unvital church? Of course not. Could you be more vital? Oh, absolutely. Couldn't we all? And it will not be about individuals. It will be about the body. For we've been called together to vitality. And if you think you're too old, nobody here was 100. Abraham had a baby at 100, so we've got a ways to go. And nobody here was willing to say they were in their 90s and gave birth. Let God have his way. He will work miracles in our midst if we allow him to do that in us. So let's help each other to do that. Let me conclude with this illustration. When I hear someone say that they reject Christ or the church or Christianity, my initial deep response is, boy, I wish you'd never heard of Christ or the church or Christianity because I know they have heard or experienced a flawed concept of each. And it's not their own fault. It's because so many Christians have failed to live out the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And they've discovered the church is full of hypocrites, well-meaning but often failing, which is why we need help. Well, there's a wonderful book called uh, Western Theology written by a man um, named uh, Wes Seliger. And he expresses in parable form what Christianity really is compared to what many people think it is or have experienced. Seliger calls the one view settler theology and the other view pioneer theology. Just a quick review. The church. In settler theology, the church is a courthouse. The old stone structure dominates the square in the middle of town. Inside its walls, records are kept, taxes are paid, trials are held for the bad guys. It's a symbol of security, law, and order. In pioneer theology, the church is a covered wagon. It's a house on wheels, always on the move. It bears the marks of life. It creaks. It's scarred with arrow marks and bandaged with bailing wire. The covered wagon is always where the action is. In settler theology, God is like a mayor. He smokes big cigars, lounges in comfortable, overstuffed chairs in the courthouse office. No one dares approach him. Guys in black hats fear him. Guys in white hats rely on him to keep things under control. In pioneer theology, God's a trail boss. He's rough. He's rugged. He's full of life. He lives and fights with his men. Without him, the pioneers would become fat and lazy. He often gets down in the mud with the pioneers to help push the wagon when it gets bogged down. Jesus, 
In settler theology, Jesus is a sheriff. He's the guy sent by the mayor to enforce the rules. He wears a white hat, always outdraws the bad guys, and also decides who gets thrown in jail. In pioneer theology, Jesus is a scout. He rides out ahead to find out which way the pioneers should go. He lives all the dangers of the trail. He doesn't risk ask the pioneers to do what he didn't do first. His spirit and guts serve as a model to all. The Christian. In settler theology, the Christian's a settler. His concern is to stay out of the sheriff's way. He tends a small garden. His motto is safety first. To him, the courthouse is a symbol of security, order, and happiness. In pioneer theology, the Christian is a pioneer. He takes risks and dares. He's hungry for adventure and new life. The pioneer is tough, rides hard, and knows how to handle himself through trials and danger. He enjoys the challenges of the trail, and he dies with his boots on. In settler theology, faith is trusting in the safety of the town, obeying the laws, believing the mayor is always in the courthouse, and keeping your nose clean. In settler, in pioneer theology, faith is the spirit of adventure. It is the readiness to move out, to risk everything on the trail. And finally, sin. In settler theology, sin is breaking one of the town's ordinances. In pioneer theology, sin is wanting to turn back. May we be pioneers and not settlers. No matter our age, God has a pioneering work for us to to be about in following his son. People who follow Jesus, who travel light, and who encourage and help one another not to forget his ways. It's going to be a wonderful adventure, not just a sermon series, but a movement, an adventure of following Jesus together. Oh, oh, the places we will go. That's a whole other sermon. Amen.